When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 285, and we are recording on June 8th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. Welcome. Hello. Yes, we've just been complaining about the heat, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because that's where we are in our lives right now. And will be for the next four months. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say, I was like not ready for it to hit this early, so. Ah, I was ready. Oh, well, you live in the South. I mean, it's I a little bit different. Oh, yeah. When does, when does it usually get hot for you? I mean, I don't even know anymore. This is the thing. Oh. Like, who right. knows? It's right. The weather is now completely unpredictable forever. Mostly, I just care about that my, my happy tomato plants won't die. That's, that's, oh. the, that's the primary concern right now. Please do the weather. Do not kill my tomato plants. Oh, they like heat, don't they? I don't know. Um, yeah, it's just an amount. I got I to gotta make sure I water them at, at night times. So I didn't I usually do like a little raised bed of tomatoes and stuff in my backyard in the summer, but Mm -hmm. I'm afraid my dog is just going to destroy it. So I'm skipping it this year until he's like no longer a puppy. That seems a reasonable call. Maybe next year. Well, we'll give it a try because I like 1000 percent sure he would just immediately dig it all up and then eat it and then throw up all over my house. That's what would happen. Yeah. No, thanks. Okay, so this is a show, as I said, for personalized reading recommendations. How it works is you send us your reading recommendations. It's, I just said it, y'all. But why are you making me repeat myself? I'm kidding. So you can email those to us at getbookedatbookriot.com or you can drop your requests in the show notes. There's a form uh, at the bottom of the show notes on the site. If your recommendation request is time sensitive, please put that in the subject line or in big letters if you use the form uh, in the first line so we'll see it and get to it on time. We might email you back if we are not going to get to it on time or if we've already answered your question or something very similar on the show. These, of course, can be for you. They can be for gifts. Uh, If you're traveling somewhere and and want a recommendation uh, to read before you go, anything like that is fine. We will answer all of it. All right, we have a bunch of feedback today. Um, The first one is from Ashley, um, who says, I would like to recommend The Cost of Knowing by Brittany Morris for the listener who wanted something with sci-fi fantasy and memory elements. The main character can see the future, which started after a traumatic event when he was younger. His little brother's power is more about the past, which is where the memory comes in. Trigger warning for racism and death of a child. Laura has suggestions for the person who was looking for mysteries in every state, specifically South Carolina, which was on her list. Um, And she recommends The Cat, The Quilt, and The Corpse by Leanne Sweeney. I am going to go find this book immediately. (laughs) Death by Darjeeling by Laura Childs, Low Country Boil by Liz Talbot, and The House on Trad Street by Karen White. Carrie says, for the listener who is looking for a high fantasy doorstopper written by women with a strong female character, I recommend The Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon. It's 848 pages, and it is engrossing, immersive, and has a diverse cast. And for the listener who wanted a different kind of vampire novel, my favorite is Certain Dark Things by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. The setting is Mexico, and the vampire lore is linked to the Aztec folklore. Although there is a romantic element, it's not a romance. All right. Um, let's read our first question here from our first sponsor and then away we will go. Our first question is from Sue who says, my request is about the country of Turkey. I have never been and don't know when I might get to travel there, but I would love to learn about the culture of Turkey. 
I generally prefer fiction, but I'm open to any genre. I've also been enjoying memoirs and biographies lately. All right, sponsor one. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone. But, you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, She wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now, he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them. But he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage. But as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Jen, what Turkish recommendations have you for Sue? Yes. So I think both of us did this. I went hard on Istanbul. Yeah, same. (laughs) It was my frame of reference. So apologies if you wanted something more general. But so, okay, before I give my book pick, I need to recommend really to everyone that you all watch Keddy, which is an amazing documentary about the street cats of Istanbul. I saw this in the theater when it came out. And it is so great. Like, it is just literally a couple of hours about cats. And nothing horrifying happens to the cats. Like, everything turns out okay. And it's really beautifully shot and narrated. Like, I'm obsessed with this documentary. It's great. Mm. The director is Jada Turin. And it's just like, I think it's on Netflix. Y'all have to watch it immediately. And then for my actual book pick... Thank you for finally giving me an excuse to get Elif Shafak on my list because I've been Mm. meaning to read her for just like decades at this point and now I finally started. So I'm picking for you Three Daughters of Eve, although I think you could really read anything by Shafak. She's one of Turkey's premier 
fiction writers. And Three Daughters of Eve, I thought would be interesting because it is more contemporary and it is set in 2016. Well, half of it is set in 2016. We're getting a dual timeline here. The main character, Perry, is both like living out her married life. She's on her way to a dinner party with her teenage daughter. And then we also get glimpses back into her childhood and then college years. And I will say that this book goes to some dark places. Uh, I'm not done yet. And so far we've got, you know, an attempted sexual assault. There's prison abuse and torture. Like it's it's going some pretty rough places. So, you know, FYI. But it's (laughs) beautifully written and it's really fascinating because you do get to see Turkey or Istanbul specifically from her viewpoint as a child when things were like more one way and now in, you know, the mid 2010s when things have changed and her reflections on those changes. And also she goes to college in Oxford. So you get this like fish out of water, what the differences as she perceived them between the cultures are, where she struggled to fit in, where she felt good about it. You know, you're getting this really, you know, personal view of what it means to have grown up in Istanbul, have left and then come back. And there's this very intense story about her family, which was very dysfunctional, like she grew up in, you know, a really difficult household. And then, you know, trying to make her peace with that, as well as uh, during, this is not a spoiler, because it's in the description of the book from the publisher, there is a terrorist attack that occurs as she's at this like fancy dinner that's in the present day. So again, a lot of dark stuff, really fascinating, really beautifully written. Uh, So that is Three Daughters of Eve by Elif Shafak. All right, I picked My Name is Red by Orhan Pamuk and translated by Erdog M. Gokner. And Pamuk is probably one of, I mean, the may, maybe the most famous Turkish author. He's won a Nobel, so, I mean, it doesn't get much more internationally well-known than winning the Nobel. Um, and this is a really chonky work of literary fiction about 16th century Turkey, but I picked it because it has um, a love story mixed in and also a murder mystery. So it actually reads quite fast at some places. In some places, it can be really, really dense. There's a lot, a lot in here about art and the philosophy of art. It's very heady. But I think that's quite useful because it's comparing Eastern and Western artistic traditions over history, uh, which if you're curious about the culture of a place, that's a really great place to start. So it opens, well, mm, it's told from multiple points of view. So the over the through line is that the Sultan in 16th century Istanbul has commissioned a work of art, a book, like an illuminated text to uh, document his victories and glories and all of that kind of thing. So it's in like a very European style, you know, you think about like the Book of Kells and all of those kind of medieval Bibles that are illuminated, done by monks, that sort of style, but in the miniature in uh, the Eastern tradition. And so he hires a bunch of artists to do this, but they're doing it in secret, secrety, secret, secrets, because in traditional Islamic tradition, you can't make this kind of figurative art. Like it is against the religious traditions of the area. So they're doing it in secret. The sultan is just going to have this thing for himself and for a few of his trusted advisors who he, don't, who, you know, like won't turn on him for committing this kind of religious sort of taboo thing. But then one of the artists turns up dead. And you hear from his ghost throughout the book. Like he's one of the points of view of like, how did you end up at the bottom of that well, sir? <laughs> like, where far out thou or bottom of the well? And uh, while that is also happening, there's a love story of a man who has come back from war and he's been gone, I think, for like 12 years. And he left 
in order to get away from oh, the woman that he loved marrying someone else, that man, the husband, is has been missing for like four or five years. He was also gone to war. And so, you know, this other hero has come back and is like hoping he can marry this woman who has now two sons. But since the husband is just missing and hasn't been declared dead, it's like quite complicated. Um, So all of these storylines get woven together. And through it, you get a really great picture of the historical era in Istanbul. So, yeah, it's quite educational in that way. So that's My Name is Red by Orhan Pamuk. All right. Our next question is from Melissa, who says, I just finished The Once and Future Witches and loved it. I'd be interested in reading more on the Salem Witch Trials from the feminist perspective, but I would want the nonfiction to feel a lot more like fiction. Okay, I'm just going to keep going. I'm recommending, it is a chunker, I will say. It's The Witches, Salem 1692 by Stacey Schiff. Stacey Schiff is a historian who, like, sort of broke onto what I think the, like, mainstream scene is in terms of history with uh, her biography of Cleopatra. And the reason I'm picking The Witches for you, even though it is, like, 500 pages long, it's, it's a lot. But she does write her history in a very narrative style. So it it's not fiction, but it reads very smoothly and it is very immersive. Like it's all these scene setting details and you feel like you're there. And she really brings these historical characters to life. So you're not going to, you know, blaze through it the same way you would a novel. But I do think, like I said, it's very readable. And Schiff is, is a feminist historian and really dives into all of the different elements of, you know, what was going on in America at this point mm. to get us to this horrifying moment. So, yeah, it's it's a chunker, but I think you will find a lot to love. And again, that's The Witches, Salem 1692 by Stacey Schiff. So I picked The Mercies by Kieran Millwood Hargrave, which does not take place in Salem. It takes place in Norway in 1617. But it is a feminist re- a feminist interpretation of real witch trials from 1620 in Norway. Um, so I think it's going to ring all of the same bells, just, you know, in a different country. But it is inspired by real events. And like the Norwegian government has just recently, I think in the last couple of years, recognized what happened in that place and put up some monuments and like is actually starting to talk about it. So what happened was that um, this is a tiny little fishing village. It's called Finnmark in Norway. The main character's name is Marin. And in this little town, a storm comes in and kills all the men, like all the because they're all out on a on a fishing boat. And there's only like 40 of them because it's a very small village. And so the storm wipes out this boat, all the men drown, and then the women are just like left there to fend for themselves. And they do. Um, Either three years pass and they have learned to get along with it, Um, you know, dealing with their own grief, dealing with their grief as a community, but also like who's going to go get the fish now? You know, they have they figured out how to survive, essentially. And in this situation comes a man named Absalom, who is a Scottish preacher and essentially a witch hunter. He's come from Scotland where he has just overseen a bunch of witch trials and he brings his wife, Ursa, who is Norwegian. And they come to this place and Ursa is like fascinated by Marin, who's lost her brother and her father in the storm um, and is kind of independent and doing her own thing. But she's also, you know, really entranced by this situation where this village is just being run by women who are just doing functionally whatever they want. I mean, they aren't being overseen in any way. There's no religious authority. There's no men telling what to do. Of course, her husband, the preacher and the witch hunter is like, this is obviously the devil. Like the devil did this. And he has decided that the women caused the storm, that they're all witches. 
And then all of these trials commence. And again, this is based on like a, a real situation that actually happened in Norway. And there are, it's brutal. You know, I mean, we all know what happened in the witch trials, especially in Europe. Just ugh, hard to read. You know what I'm saying? Just really, really hard to read. But once you get through it, I think it is quite worth looking up the actual town. The town was called Vardo, uh, or the storm is called the Vardo Storm. It happened in 1620. And all of the monuments that they put up since then are just really like whew, unsettling. The statements from the government are also quite unsettling. It's worth, uh, you know, reading up on the, the actual thing that happened there. Because 1620 in Europe feels like a bit, I don't know, but to, in my head, America feels so backwards, right? Like we're behind everybody else. So our witch trials happening in almost the 18th century was like, yeah, okay. But that feel quite feels kind of late to me in Europe, even though I know in my head that that's not true. But this was one of the last instances of um, violent witch trials in Europe was this thing in Norway. So that's The Mercies by Kieran Millwood Hargrave. All right. Question three is from Annie, who says, I'm not sure if what I'm looking for even exists, but I figured it was worth the ask. I unironically adored the X-Files short story collections edited by Jonathan Mayberry. There were three of them, and I've listened to them over and over again. I'm looking for something, really anything, but preferably short story collections that scratch that itch of weird, paranormal, urban folklore and cryptids. Bonus points if there's a Mothman. I'm not stuck on traditional American folklore and cryptids, though I do love them. I also love the stories of indigenous people and other countries and peoples. I'm not interested in government storylines. Please nothing with sexual assault. Okay, Jen, what you got? All right. So I thought about this a lot. Mm. <laughs> and I'm coming at this from a slightly different angle. I am giving you The Unidentified by Colin Dickey, which is nonfiction. So it's not exactly the same thing. But the reason I picked this for you is because Colin Dickey is also super into all things paranormal. Like this is what he does. He writes about paranormal and urban-y, legend-y things. And in this book, he is sort of diving into, you know, all of these urban legends and folklore myths that like keep coming up, you know, whether it's Flat Earth or Atlantis or Yetis or the Kentucky Meat Shower, which is apparently a thing. <laughs> like he is really going all out to talk about what these things are, where do they come from, and why do we love them so much? Because he is, you know, he loves them too, but it's like, why are we so fascinated with them? And I thought you might enjoy this sort of meta look at, you know, the origins of these stories uh, that are there for people to then adapt in short story collections like the ones you love, but like to get some more perspective on, you know, where they come from, and then, yeah, what is it that makes you want to listen to them over and over again. And Dickie is exploring that impulse as well as the actual legends themselves. So I thought this might be a fun read for you in that sense. Again, that's The Unidentified by Colin Dickie. Okay, I picked a short story collection called North American Lake Monsters by Nathan Ballingrid. This one, the Shirley Jackson and the, I think it was nominated for the Bram Stoker for short stories. And it's quite, quite creepy. And I think we'll really scratch the edge of what you're looking for. Every short story is about a different kind of monster. And it is based on American folklore. Very specifically, I think Ballingard is talking about um, like toxic masculinity and also white supremacy through the veil of these monsters. So there's a really great uh, werewolf story, which is made even creepier because you don't ever actually see. This is He does this in a few of the stories, actually. You don't ever actually see the monster. It's just this, well, horrifying systemic sort of terror that is that's running through the story. Um, there's a creepy, creepy vampire story. There's one where there's a, a white supremacist that when you start reading it, you're like, this one isn't about a monster. And then you, of course, quite swiftly realize that, yes, it is. 
And, you know, he's it's all every story is about working class people. Most of it takes place in the South, although there is one that takes place in the Arctic. So I think you'll get a lot of that X-Files-y like I keep thinking about that that episode of the X-Files. It's not in the short story collections that you're talking about, but the episode of the where with the fluke guy. Do you remember that episode? Were you an X-Files person? I have seen more than a handful, but I yeah, I was never 100 percent on board. Okay, well, there it's like I think it's in season one, and where the monster is this guy who is turned into a fluke, and it's just uh, a fluke. Really, yes, like the like a fish thing, like oh, like the fish that attach themselves to sharks. Oh, kind of, oh, with the, oh! With I the, know like, what you're the lamp, about. the lamprey mouth, like a sucker fish. Yes, but a person who lives in the sewers. It's creepy and it's weird, and it's like haunting me to this day, as you can tell. I'm pretty sure I saw that <laughs> in fifth grade. But the stories have that kind of tone, a lot of that kind of tone, where it's like that monster could be around any corner. This is also a subtle, not so subtle statement about how we are, in fact, the monsters, you know, but all set in really deeply American settings that will feel familiar in every way to, to you, to anybody who lives here. So that is North American Lake Monsters by Nathan Palingrid. Fun times. All right. Mm-hmm. Our next question is from Jennifer, who says, I just finished The House in the Cerulean Sea by TJ Klune, and OMG, it was exactly what I needed right now. Mm-hmm. Normally, I am into fantasy slash sci-fi slash horror, but with everything going on in the world, I guess I just needed a literary hug, which was The House in the Cerulean Sea. Do you have any read-alike recommendations of just some feel-good, happy books? Preferably not mainly romance, but I would give it a shot if you felt strongly about it. Bonus points for diversity and found family themes. All right, so I am delighted to recommend onto you Two Dark Moons by Avi Silver, which is the first in a series, uh, and it does end on, like, you know, uh, an open-ended moment. But the second book is coming out, if not already out, so that's... You have that. And I love this book. It is, I guess it's technically a YA. It is about Someng Par, who is part of this very small community. I think the implication is it's like a post-collapse world where humanity is sort of scattered and, you know, doesn't have a lot of technology and is sort of scraping by and there's monsters in the world. And her community lives on top of this chain of mountains, and normally they move between them. But the bridge that connects them all got, you know, overrun by monsters, and they actually lost some people, including her parents, when that happened. And so they're, like, cut off from their usual resources and rituals that come with being able to migrate from peak to peak. And she is supposed to have done this, you know, coming of age ritual and cannot because of the situation. And she's so tired of being treated like a little kid when she doesn't feel like she is. And she's also struggling to find her place sort of in the ecosystem of this village. And she ends up falling down the mountain and into the jungle where the monsters are. But then she gets rescued by this like dinosaur troop that has adopted another human who was like lost in the jungle and discovers all of these fascinating things about what is actually happening in this world. And it is definitely like found family with dinosaurs, which is a really (laughs) fun twist, I think. And there's tons of queerness and neurodiversity representation in here, which I really loved. Another detail about the world building that I adore is that your gender is based on astrology, which is a really interesting twist. So there's like all of these different kinds of genders that have to do with the configuration of the planets. And hers is actually like a big secret because of reasons 
Anyway, it is a whole fascinating world, and the characters are so sweet. Like, everybody's a cinnamon roll in their own special way. You just want to hug them. And also, there are dinosaurs. So, like, I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's very similar vibe-wise. So, again, that's Two Dark Moons by Avi Silver. Okay, so... Last year, I couldn't stop talking about the Switch, and this year, I can't stop talking about The Brilliant Life of Eudora Honeyset by Annie Lyons, which is my answer for this question. But I'm not sorry. Actually, this might be the last time I can talk about it because I might have hit my limit. But it has uh, found family themes, um, and it does feel like a literary hug. So Eudora Honeyset is an elderly woman. She's 85. She lives in the UK, and she is, like, super done. She's annoyed with modern life. She doesn't have any living friends or family anymore because her mother died, I think, 10 years prior to the book opening. And so she's just kind of, like, she's not sad or, or depressed or anything. She's just bored and like cranky and over it. So she has made an appointment for a clinic in Switzerland to have an assisted death. And that's what she wants to do. And then she gets new neighbors uh, across the street. The family of new family moves in. It includes a little girl who was 10, whose name is Rose, who is very cheerful and loud and nosy and continues to insert herself into Eudora's life in ways that Eudora finds very obnoxious at first, but then like kind of grow on her. And through her ties to Rose, she starts to get to know some of her other neighbors She starts to socialize a little bit. And the socializing has its ups and its downs. Like, it does confirm all of her feelings about how the modern world is horrible and noisy and not worth much. Um, But she also starts making these emotional connections with these people. So she, like, finds a new family, which is quite difficult for her. And you find out why through flashbacks throughout her life. She's born right before World War II. She loses her father during the war. Um, She has a very complicated and difficult relationship with her mother and her sister. There's a lot of, like, family trauma there. And so you, you you flash back and forth between her life coming into adulthood and then the present day. And so you're just kind of with her as she decides how much she's going to let these new emotional connections keep her in this world or if she's not at all because she's 85 and like she's done all of this before and is it worth it and all that. It sounds quite dark. And when I picked it up, I was like, that is quite a bright blue cover for this topic, ma'am. Like that is cheery looking and I don't believe it. But it is very heartwarming. And you know, the Cerulean Sea has a lot of its own tough topics. Like that is a book that is about racism and homophobia and like child abuse. But it's everybody loves it. And it's so feel good and sweet. And I think that this one is similar. So that's The Brilliant Life of Eudora Honeyset by Annie Lyons. And it is time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surrounds St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. 
So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. All right. Question five is from Anne, who says, I've read all of Louise Penny's mysteries, Agatha Christie's and Sherlock Holmes. I like mysteries that feature a competent detective who doesn't have a lot of angst. Poirot is a detective that I think fulfills this requirement. Recent authors that I've liked are Hans Olaf uh, Lalum, whose detective is working with a wheelchair-bound woman who is brilliant and serves as his advisor. Mysteries by John Farrow and Louise Luna. I've also read All of Town of French, Peter Lovesy, Deborah Crombie, and Peter Robinson. Okay, Jen, what you got? I am recommending to you the Lady Sherlock series by Sherry Thomas, both because you are a fan of Sherlock Holmes and because this character does not do angst. Like, she just <laughs> she just doesn't. It's not a thing that happens to her. She does not feel angst. The main character, Charlotte Holmes, is a very intelligent woman who really does not care for what Victorian society thinks she should or should not do. And she sort of poses as Sherlock Holmes through sleight of hand or whatever, like nobody can really know who she is. So there's she poses as her own assistant and all of that stuff. But she is very good at solving mysteries. And she's, you know, called upon by Scotland Yard. Obviously, they don't know that she's a woman, but she's doing her own thing. And this series, I just love because it feels like such a thoughtful rewrite of the original Holmes stories, which I also love. But I, you know, I'm always here for an interesting retelling that like pulls different pieces out of it. And I feel like that's what Sherry Thomas very much does. You know, she's taking the mysteries that are the sort of standards and that you'll recognize, but she's finding new elements and new threads or giving them, you know, more weight in all of these different ways that I think is really, really smart and interesting. And the characters are just great. I mean, they're just, I just love them. There's some fun, like, snark in there. There's some really good family feelings. There's some romance. I mean, it's just got all of the things. So again, that's the Lady Sherlock series by Sherry Thomas. Okay, I picked a newish one, uh, Arsenic and Adobo. It's by Mia P. Manansala. Um, you seem to gravitate more towards the historicals, but you also listed a lot of contemporary mysteries, so that's why I felt okay with this. And this main character, Lila, has no angst. Like, this is an angst-free zone, even though there's a lot of opportunity <laughs> for angst, which I appreciate. So Lila is, she was living in Chicago. She was working at a restaurant. She has had a horrible breakup and has moved home, and she's working at her Tita Rosie's restaurant. It's a Filipino restaurant, and she's working there trying to help them um, kind of modernize and make a new menu. Um, Lila is a great cook, 
Um, and so she's helping them come up with like some fusion dishes and, you know, all the rest of her aunts and her grandmother are also involved in running of the running of this restaurant. And she's doing this while she like kind of tries to figure out what she wants to do with her life after this breakup and a job situation that didn't go very well. And then <laughs> this like horrible, nasty food critic keeps leaving bad reviews of their restaurant in the newspaper. This horrible, nasty food critic is also her ex-boyfriend from high school. So it's like doubly annoying to her. And then when the book opens, he comes in, he's having a meal. She's hoping to serve him some of her newer, you know, creations to get any kind of good review out of him. Um, but he's kind of openly berating her in front of all the customers, and then he drops dead. <laughs> like, page one. This is not a spoiler. Like, he is just dead, face in the dessert, ex-boyfriend is dead. Uh, and she is, of course, like, um, okay. <laughs> and it's this, like, suspect number one, because he died, you know, they have a personal connection, he was leaving these terrible reviews. But then she, she discovers that he's been doing this to a lot of restaurants around town, independently owned restaurants. He's been leaving them really bad reviews, causing them to shut down so that the health inspectors have to come out. She uncovers a lot of his, like, uh, some shady stuff that was going on in his background and starts investigating what actually happened to him. Like, what, is there something wrong with the food in their restaurant? That can't possibly be. My aunts are so careful, you know, this kind of thing. All while the police are investigating her because she had what they consider to be a motive. And she's got a, like, like every good detective, she has a very entertaining sidekick, her best friend who works at a cafe next door. Her her aunties are just so great. <laughs> I love, I just, I, I love this, um, what's the, what's the word that I'm looking for? Like a crew? They're like backup singers or <laughs> a po like a posse. I don't know, like a posse of old ladies who just help her and support her in all of her choices, some of which are not great. So yeah, it's it's funny, it's charming, it's very fast-paced, and the mystery I didn't guess. And I say that every time because I never guess. So I don't know why I keep considering it a selling point. Like I'm not I'm not that person who can like solve a cozy mystery before the author tells me. I never, 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 never. But I'm gonna keep saying it anyway. So that's Arsenic and Adobo by Mia P. Manansala. That one has been on my list. I really need to get to it. It sounds like so it's much so fun. Great. Yeah. It's so great. She has a dachshund who should be its own character. I would read an entire book about this dog. It's called, its <laughs> name is Longanisa, which is a Tagalog word for sausage. Like, it's just... Oh, buddy. <laughs> awesome. All right. All right. Next question is from Christina, who says... I read The Library at Mount Char by Scott Hawkins last year, and it quickly became a favorite of mine. I finished the book with this feeling of, what did I just read? And to this mm. day, I still don't know how to t articulate it to friends when I tell them that they should read it. It's weird and wonderful and complex, and I cannot get it out of my brain even after a year from reading it. When I really think about it, the use of gods slash mythology entwined in everyday life and the impacts on the unsuspecting citizens is really what piqued my interest. But I also love how random the plot line seemed until all of the little strings came together. I read American Gods by Neil Gaiman. It semi-scratched the itch. It was good and I enjoyed it, but I was able to figure out the plot line before the book was finished. My go-to genres are obviously fantasy slash sci-fi. I love mythology of any kind mixed in. I have Gods of Jade and Shadow queued up in my Kindle to read next, but I'm really at a loss for what to read to fill the hole in my heart that this oddity of a book left. Any ideas? All right. Well, <laughs> in terms of like dark books that are like, what the hell is going on? Mm. 
May I present unto you The Machineries of Empire Trilogy by Yoon Ha Lee, which is, I think, my version of this. It is so bananas, and you're just dropped into the middle of it and sort of left to, like, just ride along and go with it because you have no idea what the rules of this universe are, what is going on, and you do begin to understand it. Like, the book shows you as it goes, but it does not, like, give you a neatly wrapped primer on where where you are and why what is happening is happening. And it is, to me, so satisfying to be like, I don't know what's happening here, but I guess I'm going to go with it. And then to get mm. like this really incredible, like you said, where it all suddenly knits together, like that moment is just like, oh, chef kiss. And I feel safe recommending this to you because some really messed up stuff happens in Library of Mount Char and you do not seem bothered by it. And like Machineries of Empire also like there's coercion and rape and a lot of violence and it's like really messed up. But it's also so well done. This is a space story and, you know, most of what you talked about is fantasy, but you said you liked sci-fi. And the in the first book, Nine Fox Gambit, we meet Kel Cheris who is the captain in this military. She's been put in sort of an impossible situation in the middle of a battle and makes a choice that is like technically blasphemous and she knows she's going to get like court-martialed and probably executed for doing it, but it's the only way to win, so she does it. And instead of executing her, they're like, guess what? We're going to have this ghost of a tactician who is insane, P.S. We're going to, like, possess him into your body so that the two of you can team up to fight this enemy that we just don't know how else to defeat. And she's like, um, what? What? No, but I guess I have to because otherwise it's that or die. And so here we are. And it is the bonkersest situation And like I said, it is so the whole trilogy is so satisfying and so well done and so weird. So, again, that's the Machineries of Empire series by Yoon Ha Lee. Uh, The first book is Nine Fox Gambit, and it is complete. You can read them all. I this is so hard because the library at Mount Char is such a singular. I mean, that's the whole point of your question, right? It's such a singular reading experience. I think mostly because of the violence, like it's so unflinchingly violent and gory and gross and like hard to get through, but also not hard to get through because I'm a weenie and I read the whole thing like and I could not put it down. So anyway, I went with Circe by Madeline Miller, which has so uh, very similar trigger warnings, sexual assault, child abuse. But the child abuse is similar to the child abuse in the library of Mount Char, where it's like of a god godlike variety that's not... Run of the run of the mill. That's not you know what I mean. Like it's not human. It's not uh, familiar. It's just bizarre. It's just bizarre and weirdly imaginative in like a way that you, you know when you think about Stephen King's brain, you're like, why? Like what happened to you <laughs> that you think that that you think that way? That's what I think when I read Library of Mount Char and also when I read parts of Circe, um, which people don't really talk about that that book is actually quite violent. Yeah, but it's a you know mythological retelling of Circe who in. The Odyssey is, uh, the Odyssey by Homer, <laughs> the original one, is um, a witch that uh, that Odysseus stumbles upon in his travels trying to get home, who like turns all his men into pigs and then, you know, he has a relationship with. And so this is a retelling of that from her perspective. She is the daughter of Helios, who is a titan and the god of the sun. And his her mother was a, uh, I don't remember, not a fairy, some kind of 
sprites, a sprite, something like that, like a, a lesser god. So Circe is immortal, but doesn't have, she's not powerful like her father. She's not beautiful like her mother. She's just like a person who lives in his palace and is just kind of there and is going to live forever being sort of mediocre and blah. But then she realizes that she's actually quite talented at witchcraft. And this is a realization that gets her into a lot of trouble, as do some of her other actions as a rebellious teenager. And so Zeus banishes her to this deserted island, which is where we pick up, you know, in in the Odyssey where we find her. And she has to stay there forever, like literally forever because she's immortal. And so she makes a life for herself. She befriends the animals. She perfects her craft, all of this. But of course, you know, Greece is a small area. And so people come and go like they find her island. She gets involved in Odysseus's life, which involves her in the lives of the gods at, at um, a, on a larger scale, because, you know, Athena was very involved. In, if you've read the Odyssey, then you know all of this. Uh, and so she has to protect herself and her child. And it's just a very dramatic retelling of the story that gives voice to a woman who in the original is completely like is just stage dressing, as most of the women in all of Homer tend to be. But it has that kind of mundane, you know, she's like living life picking flowers or whatever on this island. It has that kind of mundane, everyday feeling that the Library of Mount Char has interwoven with like very violent and capricious gods and goddesses um, doing whatever they want to do with no real regard for how it's going to affect the people who have to like bear the brunt of their choices. So that's Circe by Madeline Miller. Okay, last question is from Laura, who says, do you have any recommendations for own voices novels that take place in rainforests, preferably in South America? I've been enjoying reading books set in the Amazon lately, but everything I find is written by white people from Western countries, and it feels kind of gross. Nonfiction and fiction are both great. I just really enjoy this setting. Okay, Jen. All right, so I spent a lot of time thinking about this question, and I had a bunch of picks, but then they all sort of ended up feeling very colonialist in weird ways. And so mm-hmm. I like, I don't know, I, I flailed on this one. But then I remembered, and I don't think a lot of people know this, that Isabella Allende wrote a young adult series, the first of which takes place deep in the Amazon. It's called City of the Beasts. And I loved this when I read it back in the day. It first came out in Yeah, 2002. And I think I read it maybe just a couple years after that. It's translated by Margaret Sayers Peden. And it is about a 15 year old named Alexander, whose grandmother is part of this. It's like, obviously based on National Geographic, but it's called International Geographic. Um, And they're sending an expedition into South America to document this uh, Yeti of the Amazon known as the Beast. And Mm. He's like very excited to go on this, but he's also kind of like, this is, this is ridiculous. I mean, he's a teenager. He's like, this is ridiculous. And there are things that are outside of his comprehension that he has to like start, you know, it's a big adventure. Uh, And he makes a friend named Nadia and they have to like tap into their own heritage and, you know, have this amazing adventure. And it's just, it's just so much fun. And it is very like, uh, what's the word I want? Like, you feel like you're there. It's very sensory, enjoyable. You absolutely do feel like you're in the Amazon with this expedition. So again, that's City of the Beasts by Isabel Allende, translated by Margaret Sayers Peden. So, I, yes, the <laughs> similar colonial vibes yeah. on, on mine. My, so my pick is a little bit strange. It is a known voices book. It's by a Bolivian author. It takes place in Bolivia, but it's about Nazis. So it's kind of a combination of the two, I suppose, of the problem that you're encountering, but also a bit of a solution to it. So it's, a, it's Affections by Rodrigo Hasburn. The translator is Sophie Hughes. And this takes place in Bolivia. 
and it is right after World War II. It's about a family from Germany called the Ertels. The Ertels? E-R-T-L. And the father was a cameraman for a Nazi propagandist. So he has taken his family, his wife and his, I think, three daughters, and fled uh, right before the end of the war to Bolivia. As we know, many Nazis did fled Germany before the end of the war and went to South America, hoping to escape being served justice for their terrible, horrendous crimes against humanity. And so that's what he's done. Um, and he lives in the jungle. This man, lived, this Nazi, lives in the jungle with his family. He's trying to start over. But he is complete. He's like restless. His name is Hans. He's, re- he's restless. He can't, obviously, you know, in his head, this is a big fall from power. He has nothing to do with himself. So he decides he's going to embark on this expedition into the jungle, into the Amazonian jungle, looking for the lost, a lost Incan city. And in this way, he's going to restore himself to glory and fame and blah, blah, blah. Which you think somebody hiding from justice would try to be like avoiding the fame situation, but I suppose not. Anyway, so he takes his kids with him and then the whole family just falls apart. It takes place over the 50s and the 60s. And you're with all of these family members as this decision to take this expedition and then a bunch of other decisions this man makes just completely destroy his family. His oldest daughter, Monica, becomes, um, she joins the Marxist guerrillas. She gets a nickname is like Che Guevara's Avenger. Uh, His wife and her two sisters have to stay behind and like try to keep the family together, but it doesn't super work. And all of this is set against this jungle setting, this Amazonian setting that's very unforgiving and does not care who these people are. And it's quite satisfying in like a schadenfreude kind of way to watch a character who you know is despicable, completely disintegrate. And It's funny because, well, not funny, but like it's never mentioned, like it's never straight up said this guy came to Germany because he was a Nazi. But it's, you definitely pick up on it, right? Like it is inferred quite quickly through stuff that that all of the characters say. And watching Monica, the oldest, especially try to kind of redeem herself uh, from her family's terrible choices by joining the guerrillas, by joining like Marxist guerrillas is fascinating it's just an it's an interesting psychological study that takes place in this setting that you're looking for but it's so short it's less than 150 pages and so much is packed into it so much like historical analysis and who is responsible for the crimes of their family and like is this colonialism if you're running from the government and like a kind of yes the answer is yes so yeah a lot going on so that's affections by rodrigo haspen and that's our show that is our show jazz hands jazz hands always thank you so much to our audio editor jen zinc and thank you all for listening you can get more book recommendations at bookriot.com and you can find all of our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen please leave us a rating and a review on apple podcasts thank you to our sponsors and you can find us on social media i'm on instagram at i'm amanda nelson where is jen i am on twitter and tumblr at jen irl j-e-n-n-i-r-l and on instagram as i am jen irl and we will talk to y'all next week 